From Daylight and Media 3 Limited, I'm Kazuki Akiba. I'm Tara Hori. And this is a new season of Sayonara Baseball. This is a podcast where you and I find unseen baseball gems by analyzing them alongside different trends, news, and motivation behind many moves around the league today. Today, we will discuss the recap to the 2020 World Series and what we think was the key to winning it all in this short season. And here to talk more about this is Brandon Weiser, a longtime colleague of mine. He's a business intelligence professional who's a Ford's advisor contributor, as well as a man behind the Airline Guy blog. He writes his opinions on news in the airline industry. Dave Roberts. That third strike play. Dodgers have won it all in 2020. Welcome back to Sayonara Baseball. I'm Kazuki, and here again is Brandon, and we're going to wrap up our final episode about the World Series. Thanks, Kazuki. Thank you for having me back. Uh, the World Series has ended after multiple predictions. Where it's like, we're never going to have a World Series. We're going to have a baseball season. We're going to finish the season. That was Now we're here. The situation that essentially we thought would never bring about, bring about the World Series, the coronavirus pandemic and the public health crisis going on currently, uh, reared its ugly head in the last part of the game of game six. So we'll, I want to, on behalf of our group, I just want to quickly go over what happened at the end of game six, because we're not going to talk about it the rest of the podcast. Yes, because we're not an expert about We are, we are famously regard. not public health experts, nor are we experts on the protocol the MLB had in place or the protocols that the state of Texas had in place, any of those. But it's worth discussing quickly what happened. In game six, Justin Turner was removed from the game in the seventh or the eighth inning. Eighth inning. In the eighth inning. For whatever reason, we did not know at the time. We later learned through a report from Fox Sports' Ken Rosenthal that he was removed because he had tested positive for COVID-19. At that time, that's what we knew. We later learned that he had tested, had an inconclusive test from his Monday sample that was shipped to the lab that the MLB was using in, I believe it said Utah, which is where they were using all the, that was a, that was a preeminent lab for all their testing that they were doing at this time. It was an inconclusive test. Inconclusive, according to epidemiologists, means the sample of the viral load is not significant enough to, to, to deem either negative or positive. But mo- it, it is leaning towards presumptive, positive, but it's inconclusive based on the significance of the viral load. He is still in the game when that test was recorded to MLB in the second inning. A report said that that test was brought to the attention of Major League Baseball in the second inning. They did not remove him. This is where it gets like you could have opinions about things. We're not going to state our opinions about this. We're stating the facts. There was a test. It was inclusive. They then rapid tested the remaining samples from the Tuesday test, and that came positive. He was immediately removed from the game after a call from the lab to MLB to the Dodgers to the dugout. That's what we know. And then the chaos ensues where Justin Turner then is seen on the field celebrating the win with his mask off and all those things. There's an odd. Let me state this is we are taping this on Saturday, October 31st. There's an ongoing MLB, there's an ongoing Dodgers investigation into what exactly happened. There are plenty of comments. They're out there. 
go listen to them, go look it up. There's comments from all different members of organizations, news newsmakers, newscasters, broadcasters. We're going to leave it at that. Justin Turner played in the game, is obviously factored into the game, and we're going to talk about that. But in the end, we now have, after from 1988 to 2020, the Dodgers have won a World Series. And that's what we're here to talk about. Yep. And after 32 years, uh, what an accomplishment. Uh, I would like to say the drama never leaves the Dodgers winning a World Series. In 1988, game one was a Kirk Gibson home run. And in this year, they had drama, multiple, multiple ends of the drama. They had the end of game four, which we'll get into. Game four ended, and I want to say the wildest way that I've seen, and I'm a Mariners fan. That was bizarre. I'm going to go with. I would say it's the weirdest game since 2013's uh, game four was the Cardinals and the Red Sox. How that ended was a whole walk off was a Cardinals win. Right there. There's there are some several walk off crazy walk off wins. I'm thinking David Freeze home run in my head right now. Just the, the David Freeze thing with the Rangers that that series, too. Uh, that was a, a that was what I thought the most significant walk off in World Series history at the time. And now I've seen this. And then we're going to discussion analytics. Because that's now that is now the ongoing conversation after what happened in game six. Now we'll start with our, our, what we think of our initial reactions. We both wanted the race to win. We really did. The Dodgers won. Shout out to our friend Kim in the front office at in the Dodgers. She's going to get a World Series ring. We feel very, very proud of her. And boatloads of money. A lot of bonus, I assume. Uh, we really hope that they pay out their front office staff. Then we have to look at all the elements of what happened this, in this World Series. We'll go through some of the games individually, but performance-wise, Tampa Bay Rays, losing team. However, they have the most, Im- most exciting player in all of baseball right now. He is, according to reports from Deadline Hollywood, having a movie made after him now uh, by the same studio that produced Invincible with, uh, with Mark Wahlberg. He's getting a movie that's Randy Razorain, and he deserves a movie. His journey is just amazing. Defected from uh, Cuba and went to Mexico, played there for a few years, and then got acquired by the Cardinals and then traded to the Rays. And he, you know, just accomplished such an amazing feat. Uh, so we have a couple things to list. He broke the all-time rookie postseason record for most hits and the all-time home run record in a single postseason with 10 home runs. Uh, that's an, that's nothing short to say, and he's still rookie eligible till starting next season, so he could still get a rookie of the year right after this. That's the part that is incredible. The man started off this year in isolation because of the coronavirus. He comes back and played the exact amount of games to not qualify him as a rookie of the year this year. He then goes in the world, goes in the playoffs. Granted, he hit the most home runs for a rookie in all time in the playoffs. There was an extended playoffs. I don't care. The amount of pressure on the Rays to play well, and he delivers in spades. The whole team was lifted by a person that was, in theory, not supposed to lift them. He played every game. He played remarkably well. And he even hit a home run in the final game of the playoffs. He was just a sight, a sight to watch. And I'm very glad that I got to introduce myself to Randy Arazarena, Randy Arazarena this year. Um, he has a Macarena parody song written about him now. 
Um, I'm sure that song will be played over and over at the Trop next year. Or if they ever play at the Trop, right? Because we don't even know if they're playing in Montreal either. So uh, at the Olympic, the the Stade Olympique. I hope that's right in French. <laughs> Olympic Stadium. Uh, it's a beautiful stadium. I will say that. Uh, Never been in, in my in, life. In, if I lived in living in New England, uh, going to Montreal is a nice nice trip in. The Olympic Stadium is a beautiful stadium, most notably known recently as the stadium where the U.S. women's national team beat Germany to advance the Women's World Cup in 2015. Shout out to that team. So the, the Tampa Bay Rays are in a, in a whole mess of trouble in terms of that scenario. And we'll talk about their offseason a little bit, too. Right. Was their cheap uh, owner, Stu uh, Steinberg, right? The cheap ownership has already already lost. I'm counting two players. players, two significant players. And then Michael Perez. The backup. Oh, right. He got claimed by uh, he got claimed off waivers already. Right. So the, the, the unraveling of the of the race has begun. Uh, but we'll get to that later on. The other thing with the race that we saw come out in this World Series was the good and the bad and still the even uglier with the pitch because mm-hmm. the good when they needed to shine, they shine quite well. Even Blake Snow, when he got the hook in game six, which we'll talk about, pause on that thought. He threw as many strikeouts as you ever wanted. He was pitching great. Uh, Charlie Morton pitched well. Charlie Glasnow, they all pitched good to great along that line. The bullpen was not in the shape it should have, it was, we all hoped for. And that was kind of the bad. Well, they just relied on just two guys who's been overworked all season. And that's Nick Anderson and Pete Fairbanks. Um, they did not go to Diego Castillo. Or even Aaron Loop, who was probably the most effective uh, reliever of this postseason series. Yeah, we Aaron Loop was kind of the, became like the de facto fireman type role when they needed him, and that was reserved for Nick Anderson. And Nick Anderson, according to multiple stati- statisticians, and I will source Sarah Langs from MLB, he including the final game, there were seven consecutive games where he gave up a run, and that had never been done in postseason history by any pitcher. In the bullpen. That's not a stat you want to hold on to. You don't. And the last time he actually sh- had a shutout inning was back in the wildcard series against Toronto. The rest, when he faced the Yankees, the Astros, and the Dodgers, gave up at least one run. And that's unfortunate because we all think Nick Anderson is a fantastic reliever. We both agree on that. And we hope the, thing, hope the situation turns around for him. And this is where we'll... Because we want to talk more about the Dodgers and the positives, because love hot. And we'll spend a little some time on this discussion. Let's go to back to game six and the other story of game six. Blake Snell has notoriously this analytical brand attached to him. Blake Snell does not face a lineup more than two times. He gets the hook after the third, before the third time around the lineup. We go to game six. Blake Snell has struck out the top three batters in the Dodgers lineup. That'd be Betts, Seager, Turner. Both times have been up. They are 0 for 6 with six strikeouts. They are not hitting him, period. And on top of that, Mookie's uh, splits uh, against lefties this year is in the low 200s. Exactly. All signs in this one box of a game point to keep Blake Snell in as long as you can. Sixth inning, Austin Barnes comes up, gets a single. Not a great single. I heard that the velocity off the bat was like 91, which is not very high. Kevin Cash 
unequivocally walks out and pulls him. And the debate just starts in force. What do, was this the right decision? Now, Snell can't believe it. If there's one thing that I can I can actually offer on this as an as somewhat of like some degree of expertise, it's how to use analytics in a decision making process. If you subscribe to analytics, the general notion is you either subscribe 100% or you unsubscribe. You do not meet it halfway. And I understand that mentality. Do I subscribe to that myself? Probably not in full earnest. So I'm not the most dedicated analytical person to that specific thing. I believe analytics is a balance of art and science. Science says Blake Snell's got to go. Art says what is happening right now? What are the other factors you can imagine? And let's take a look at just this one game with Blake Snell. And then we'll go back and see other pitchers that with the Rays, it doesn't really follow this somewhat sequential pattern. We know the Rays are very dedicated to analytics, without a doubt. They are one of the most dedicated people to that or to that. Blake Snell's opposing batting average OPS climbs significantly for every successive time the bang lineup, the lineup turns over, the third time being the worst of that bunch. And, and the next successive decision is to bring in Nick Fairbanks. I mean, Nick Anderson, sorry. Not. So you bring in Nick Anderson after that. Nick Anderson, as we have brought up originally in this podcast, has not performed well. He is exhausted, a lot of his energy, pitching successive games and giving up runs in all the successive games. Blake Snell has, in his head. Right. And mentally, there is probably some notion of confidence being withered away. I'm supposed to be the fireman. That's a role that I've, I've, I've earned for this team, and I can, I'm having trouble assuming that role right now. Blake Snell is pitching one of the, statistically, one of the greatest games in baseball postseason history right now. You bring it up to that point, that inflection point, and analytics will say you take him out now. And I understand that. The next successive decision is who do you bring in? And it has always been Nick Anderson. Nick Anderson is the wrong person to bring in this scenario. And that's where I think analytics, the, the art of analytics is getting mismanaged in this scenario. I am not Kevin Cash. I am not the Tampa Bay front office. I'm speaking from a purely decision-making perspective. Analytics, in my opinion, is a balance of art and science. The science is going to say, take Blake Snell out. If you want to take him out, fine. Don't bring in Nick Anderson. Bring in someone else. Bring in Aaron Luke. Bring in Ryan Thompson. Bring in some other pitcher to manage that scenario. Because what happens next? Nick Anderson throws a wild pitch. Zanino drops it. You get a runner comes in. It's bad. And not to mention, um, he faced Mookie Betts as a runner on first. And right when Mookie went up, a double, second and third. And wild pitch after that. And a fielder's choice where Mookie comes in because of his speed. Because Mookie is a beast in terms of base running. And two runs already in and, and it was in uh, seven pitches. That's how a game breaks down when analytics fails. Now, analytics never should be looked at in a vacuum. This is one instance. Historically, if you go back... Obviously, they have looked at Blake Snell has this statistical drop off after two times of the order. Look at the other starting pitchers. Tyler Glasnow went a lot longer in terms of the distance in this World Series. They always have a rule for him. They have always had a rule for Charlie Morton. And, and that's where analytics sets yourself up as like 
the, the double-edged sword. It creates rules for decision-making. You say that if X happens, you do Y. Because it's like the whole con, the, the, the very tacit assumption of like regression. How many predictors can you put in place to get the answer that you want? The one flaw of that is you put too many factors in place to do that. So you try to remove them to get like the statistical window that's like, this is good. And I think the Rays have basically set up the offseason argument of like, how dedicated to analytics does a team need to be to win? Because I've I've heard multiple commentators look back at the Nationals from the year prior. They put all the onus on their starting pitchers. The Rays did not. So that's a man. That's a, that's a philosophy. Every company, every team, every organization, every group of individuals has a mission and philosophy that they abide by. And this is where like, I, I get, I actually get both sides. Like it depends what you want to do. If you were to ask me as a individual who watches baseball as a fan, do you take Blake Snell out? The answer is unequivocally do not even think about it. You keep that man in the game and you let him, you let him, Finish this thing that he started. That mentality, I don't think exists anymore in baseball in terms of like a, for a team to go analytics. Because remember, you either subscribe or you unsubscribe. You do not meet it halfway. And there are some great opinions about how you look at this. I will point out a few. If you are able to find the Wednesday edition from this week, so Wednesday, the 28th. 20, yeah, the 27th of October of baseball tonight, the day after um, the World Series ended from ESPN, Jake Odorizzi, who pitched on the Rays, now pitches for the Twins, explains how he looks at analytics from both being a starting pitcher and being a member of two organizations that subscribe different analytics. It's very interesting. And I took away of this idea of like the two perspectives. As a pitcher, you don't want to come out of the game. But the front office is like, Got to lean into analytics for it to work because we want to sign players. We want to do all these things. You got to subscribe. And then I look at the philosophy of like just fandom. It's like, I want Blake Snell to go to distance and win this game for the Tampa Bay Rays. And he did not have that opportunity. And it all fell apart on just situations you really can't predict, but they exist. Wild pitch, fielder's choice. And then Mookie Betts to home run, 3-1, game, that's the final score. Of the game. So I'll end my diatribe on analytics there. But that, that mentality is what the Rays are known for. That is their concrete mission statement. I don't think anyone should lose their job or anyone should be unequivocally questioned for it. Kevin Cash did a very nice job in his press conference after the game, which you should go look up as well, explaining, like, I, I, I believed in this and I, want to, I committed to that decision. And that's the whole point that I want to just end on. Analytics as a, as a part of your philosophy is about conviction. He, he made the conviction that I'm going to stick to my guns with Blake Snell follows this rule. It didn't work. Unpredictability is the beauty of life. Things don't go as planned. This is interesting because when you say analytics, right, for that particular situation, so I get that's the third time around was Blake Snell. So the rule says he has to be taken out. But the batter who's coming up is Mookie Betts. He is Mookie Betts, an MVP. Don't get me wrong. But if you look at his stat line, by the time he comes up the third time around facing a starter, his OPS drops even further. 
he's the best when he faces a starter the first time around. And then after that, drops to 800 and he's in the 700 uh, OPS range by the time he faces it. And if you look at this year's stat, his splits between righty and lefty is very different. And he didn't, he hits fastball very well. So like Blake Snell, he has an arsenal of curveball and slider. That's most of the pitches that were working for him for that game. So, so to me, if you look at analytics, why not at least let him face Mookie Betts, who did not do well against lefties and does not hit breaking pitches as well as fastball. And if that, and he already struck out twice against him, then if you look at probability, the most likely chance that he will get on base or do any damage is very unlikely. So why not do that? And the, I think the problem, like you said, who they brought in, Nick Anderson. Look at his splits. All he throws are fastballs and curveball. In fastball, he throws over 60% of the time. During the course of 2020, that's Mookie's favorite pitch to hit. And of course, he, we all know what happened, and that's what happened. But if you look at the flip side, we're looking at Dave Roberts, who also comes from a background of sticking to just analytics just because of Dodgers front offices. Essentially, Tampa Bay Rays 2.0, but was money because Andrew Freeman brought the same philosophy over to the Dodgers. Um, I felt like he did not follow analytics uh, during the at least the last two series. Uh, if there were analytics, he would have brought in Kenley Jansen in key moments in ninth inning because he's your closer. He'll do well in those moments. But instead, he let Julio Urias, which who will, we will talk about even more in depth later on, uh, closed both of the key uh, clinching games. Yeah, that's the issue that I have. It's like you brought up the, the one part about this that is troubling. It's the fact that you can't punch holes in analytics. And you punched a hole in analytics. It's like, well, if you can face one batter, not three. And it's like, uh, do you really want to do that? And that's where the, the problem therein lies about what happens with all of this. And I can't subscribe to that viewpoint. Like I can't subscribe to the viewpoint of punch holes in it, do all these things, that kind of thing. So that's, that's where I sit on the Mookie Betts issue. I would love for him to pitch all three of those guys and then leave. Go through six and then go 79. Didn't happen. So... That's 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 that. what you're suggesting is Jody had a game plan already set up and that's what they were going to stick to because of one number said. Absolutely. Stop. You, 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 you nailed the nail on the head. It's like that's how uh, that's how it goes. You uh, set it up and you set up a certain way. If you, you write the script, analytics is designed to write scripts, it's designed to write a script, a plan that is structure. And if you deviate from that, it's not analytics anymore. And. I would love to think you can subscribe and unsubscribe. You can't, really can't unsubscribe and subscribe to analytics. And they didn't. Made a choice. They paid the price. That's about it. I'll let you start on the Dodgers while uh, we figure out what, we'll figure out the raise later on. But we'll start on the Dodgers now. And they played quite well. There's a lot of great tidbits about the Dodgers' performance from pitching to the batting and the fielding. We'll go into game four. And that what happened with game four, because there was a lineup issue with that one. Uh, what happened with the Rays one that gave them the more dramatic eight, seven win uh, from the Dodgers perspective. Other than Brett Phillips being the savior for the Rays. But I'll, I'll let you start with the Dodgers and go from there. Well, Dodgers, um, a lot of positives here. 
Clayton Kershaw first, he completed the Ash Ketchum arc. As you guys know from Pokemon, Ash Ketchum is the main uh, protagonist of that show where he goes on to these Pokemon tournaments to win. And Kershaw, similarly, postseason is his tournament. And like Ash Ketchum, he, didn't, he does not win tournaments. He always fails at the last stage and he loses and goes through a lot of hardship, but he finally wins a tournament. Uh, I believe the statistic is around what the, after 19 postseason series, he finally wins a ring. Correct. So Clayton Kershaw, after 19 postseason rounds, is the longest is the has experienced the longest amount of drought, quote unquote, to win a, to win a to win a World Series speech. And then Kenley Jansen with 16 rounds. Uh, and uh, that's how it ends for them. It's incredible to watch him. He I mean, he did win it in his hometown. Good for him. The Dodgers pitching uh, shined where it, when it needed to shine. Um, Especially well, the two Bulldog in Kershaw and obviously Walker Bueller, probably the ace of that staff at this point. I will say that um, I notoriously have not mentioned a lot about Julio Urias throughout this, um, throughout the entire postseason. And what he did at the end of game six was absolutely remarkable because he did what A.J. Minter did for the Braves in that game. Pitch one inning, pitch two innings, pitch three innings, and he closed it out. And there is an absolutely beautiful photo essay from the L.A. Times, specifically from writer Esmeralda Bermudez. Um, she covers Latin and Hispanic communities for the L.A. Times. She posted a little photo essay on her Twitter the day after the World Series about Julio Reyes and his relationship with his father. Julio Reyes wears glasses, much like I do if people were watching. This. And I wear glasses when I play sports. Julio Reyes had a benign tumor in one of his eyes. And that's why his eye looks a little bit like shut and a little bit closed in when he's focusing. You focus in on him when he's pitching. And the, that makes it, I presume, I presume, very difficult to be a pitcher, let alone an a, a act in real life. But to be a pitcher where precision is so important. And he throws absolute dominating pitches consistently in that game. And the story that um, the LA Times has multiple times in their Hispanic and Latin sections of their newspaper over the years, the uh, article and essay that Ms. Bermudez posted is just a absolute beautiful representation of how much he had overcome to be as dominant as a pitcher as he'd become. And he is so young, which is the most beautiful point about this. He is destined to be this great pitcher, whether it's being the bullpen as a starter, we don't know. But that was such a bright spot for them. And I did not expect that, that to happen, to be honest with you. I did not expect Julio Urias to be this bright spot for the Dodgers as much as he was, especially in game six. He did the same thing in uh, game seven of the NLCS against the Braves. Also pitched around three innings and closed the whole uh, game out. His stuff, uh, his fastball, which averaged around 94 to 95, and his changeup were just effective this entire postseason. Even when he started... He only gave up a run over four to five innings. So he is destined to be the next Clayton Kershaw, as in the person to replace him in the future run as a starter, probably the number two behind Walker Bueller. And fun fact, I want to say, because we're talking about Julio Arias, um, 
did you guys know that the past 10 years, none of the opening day starters of that winning team closed any of the World Series games? And it's starting from 2011 and on. Last year, we're talking about Daniel Hudson, who was not on the opening day roster for the Nationals, closed. 2018, Chris Sale is a starter for the Red Sox. He closed the World Series game. And 2017, Charlie Morton, who's, who's on the Rays, or not anymore, but who was on the Rays, closed for the Astros in 2017 and onwards. So the last time uh, actual opening day closer closed was uh, Brian Wilson of the Giants in 2010. That was the last time we've ever seen an opening day closer close a game. Any other, st- any other games you look at, any other series, a starter or some bullpen arm that came in in the middle of the season closed the game. You know, I heard in a while, Brian Wilson, the, the great haircut. He was a great, he was an absolutely phenomenal pitcher uh, for many, many years. The, the essence of the Dodgers came to fruition in many ways. Um, the, the one downfall was game four. And you've allowed me to break down defenses on this podcast and I'll break down game four in that bottom nine scenario. So there's a runner, the runners are on base. Randy Rosarena is, was the last man up as a walk. So he has walked. I am, I am pulling up the top nine play, the plays of that inning. So in the bottom of the ninth, Yoshi Tsutsugo strikes out. Kevin Kiermaier singles. Joy Wendell lines out. Randy Rosarena walks. So there's a runner on first and second. Brett Phillips is up. Brett Phillips hits a floater, I want to call, to center field. Pause on that. Move to a precision game. The starting center fielder in that game was A.J. Pollock. A.J. Pollock was pinch hit for by Jock Peterson. Jock Peterson does not play center field. Jock Peterson is moved to left field. Chris Taylor moved from left to center. Cody Ballinger is playing D.H. Cody Ballinger is normally the starting center fielder. Had Cody Ballinger been playing, would this play have happened? I don't know. But we're just factoring, listen, we love Chris Taylor. We both have said we love Chris Taylor. That's what happened. Brett Taylor hits the floater. Chris Taylor misplays the ball. Kevin Kiermaier is definitely going to score. Going away around. Tie game. Tie game. No matter what. Randy Rosarena rounds third and trips. Pretty, pretty eloquently, I might say. I mean, it was a really face first, very beautiful. And then they throw the, Chris Taylor immediately lines it into Will Smith. Will Smith then goes to tag Randy Rosarena. Because Randy Rosarena's kind of come right at him. He does this, like, I want to call it a disc jockey's turn with his, with, his, with his mitt. And the ball just goes, I don't know where. Like, it's good, it just goes out of his glove. And Randy Rosarena just runs through and, and taps the base and, and it's game over. Do I want to blame a lot of, do I want to blame the Dodgers like that's like a giant miscue? No. That was just unfortunate circumstances. The only, the only, honestly, the only mistake I want to say is Chris Taylor misplayed that ball. So let's play the ball in center field. We still didn't talk about the biggest elephant in the room, which is Kelly Jansen, who should oh, have right. been covering well, obviously, the Who's pitching this inning? Kelly Jansen pitching this inning. I mean, he Kelly Jansen has... Like, he right. did not Kenley cover Jansen behind is, the bag. Kenley Jansen is... has a loss on the record for this game. We've always doubted his ability to close. 
And now we have a we have a double. We have there are only two errors for the team for the Dodgers in the game are on this single play. Kenley Jansen is the pitcher of record who has given up the two plays that have brought these two players in. So he gets this black mark on his record for this for this year. Will Smith is a great catcher, but makes a really poor decision. But I'm not, uh, that means he made an error, but I think the whole play breaks down because Chris Taylor overran the ball, misjudged the ball. It's like a, it's a little bit confusing what exactly happened with Chris Taylor, but he made a mistake. And that's what cost him, really. Kenley Jansen contributed in the fact that two players on base. But in the end, Chris Taylor made a mistake and created this whole domino series of events that was like, that's what happens. It's unfortunate for the Dodgers because they could have won the whole series then. They, felt, they could have taken full advantage of that series. They didn't. And they go into um, Sunday night and then they, they got a win on Sunday. They win on Sunday, obviously. But they could have they could have won the series on Sunday night. With Clayton Kershaw being a hero. Didn't have that chance because they committed a double error on a player who had maybe one at bat in the entire World Series or postseason, I felt like. Brett Phillips, I don't even know. I mean, he's a Brett Phillips was a hero that game. Rightfully so. He he needed to make a play, he made a play. Because it was no matter what, it was a hit. Kevin Kiermeyer was gonna score. That game was gonna be tied. And that's what happened. And that's where you lose, you lose all your um, abilities. It was gone. Other than that, I don't really see any issue with the Dodgers in terms of like defensively and what they did. Kenley Jansen, obviously, pitching wise was like another like question mark. I will say that from an interesting defensive perspective, what the Dodgers have done. And I texted our friend Zach who is on our softball team, who famously is all for the four-cross defense in the outfield. When Will Smith got up in one game, there was a play where all the outfielders were in this giant circle, and they pushed an outfielder in the shift out, pushed an infield out to the outfield. They had four across in a major league baseball game. I have never seen that before. And talk about the Rays buying into stat, the analytics. What? A, wow. Like, you see that in rec leagues. Like ours. <laughs> right. You see that in rec, that's a rec league play. And then they land in the major league baseball. And I couldn't even fathom why they're doing. It's like, do you want, does he want, do you not want to get behind you? Do you want, like, do you want to get in front? You want to hold to a single? I was like, Will Smith's not a great runner. So I wasn't really, I, I was just watching. And I was like, talk about the Dodgers just complicating the lives of other teams. They're that good. I mean, we saw Corey Seager when he doubled up, he won both the, NLCS and the World Series MVP. You know, Dodgers, like I said, we're scattering around our points here, but they they played exceptionally well throughout this entire World Series. And I think the key point we want to really talk about is the fact that Dodgers scored runs when it mattered. Two outs. Every time there were two outs, they finally managed a way to score runs in, and especially in runners in scoring positions. So we're talking about a 270, uh, 350 batting average in runners in scoring position with two outs. And they managed to bring it in while the Rays, most of their uh, runs came from solo home runs. And fun fact, Brandon Lau, who's been hitless most of the postseason, he hit three home runs, but those were the only hits he ever had in this postseason. Home runs. Yeah, he, had a, he, was in, he was in a really bad slump for a while. I will say that about him. He had a, he had a really rough slump in, of, of many things when it came to 
his abilities. I was not too pleased to see that happen because I really wanted, like I said, we wanted the, we wanted the race to win. And Brandon Lau had a rough series. Randy, they rode Randy Rezarain as much as they could for as long as they could. And that can only go so far. Right. One person can't, unlike basketball or soccer, one person can't carry the entire team. It's a team sport. Truly a team sport. And there we have it. The Dodgers uh, from 1988 till now have won a World Series. Uh, as we've always provided on this podcast, Mariners fun fact, on the 1988 Dodgers World Series winning team, one of the starting pitchers who won a game in that World Series was Tim Belcher, who was also a starting pitcher on the Mariners in the 1995 ALDS against the Yankees. So there's your Mariners fact of the podcast. Uh, and we see where they're going to go from here. Uh, there's lots of free agent talk. We'll get into that next, uh, with the Dodgers included, but the season has concluded and we didn't think it would happen. It finally came to fruition. It started at the end of July. It ended at the end of October, like it normally would. And already we have off season baseball to talk about. And then, uh, one thing before we do go to the off season is uh, Mookie Betts. What a difference maker that was for a whole trade this uh, past postseason. And he is the youngest player to ever win a, win a World Series coming into a new team the first season. And the, that, blow, that just blows my mind. Right, 27, under 30. He's the only under 30 person, uh, which is kind of funny because we worked for an under 30, under 30 uh, place before. But um, yeah person who held that record was Frank Robinson and he was age 30 when he entered the Baltimore Orioles the first season to win a World Series. So that is some kind of accomplishment and now Mookie has uh, two rings. Put anyone in the conversation of Frank Robinson is you have to you have to be of a certain stature of baseball to be in that conversation. And I will forever revere Frank Robinson. And if you were in the house of Frank Robinson, you deserve you have you have earned some degree of of notoriety. And Mookie Betts obviously has. He did with the he did with the Red Sox. And he has with the Dodgers now, and he's there for a very long time, a very long time. And we'll see what what progresses from there. Did we get all, everything out of our system for the postseason? Besides the uh, you know amazingness of the whole games, and even Corey Seager, who essentially also tied the home run record. Well. Rosarena kind of rewrote the history books, but he got two Chevy trucks now. So that's good. Do you want a Chevy truck for both times? I think so. Because wow. don't you want a Chevy every time you win an MVP? Well, Corey Seager, uh, I would respectively like to um, bid on one of your Chevy pickup trucks, please. Because I would love a new car. Uh, actually, I love my car, but I would love a Chevy pickup truck. So Corey Seager, um, you can send it to Kyle and uh, we'll pick it up in Seattle. drive across the country just give the car to kyle all right just give the car to kyle coming up after the break brandon and i provide our thoughts to the future of the postseason as well as the upcoming off season First, we, what we want to focus on is the future of the uh, postseason, right? Uh, what do you think worked in this format and what didn't? Will they do a bubble again? 
I'm not sure. Will they do a bubble again? Will they do like the, like the sights and the bubbles again? I'm not sure. I think the expanded playoff was good, though I've heard reports they're not going to do it again. And I think that because it puts the, the higher level teams at disadvantage. And I don't think they want to become the NCAA tournament type of style where like the upsets can happen really early on. That's the beauty of NCAA basketball. It's not the beauty of baseball. I mean, mediocrity didn't make the postseason. Like who ex- who wanted the Brewers to make the World Series? I mean, the postseason. Nobody wanted to make the Brewers. Or the, no one wanted the Brewers in the World she, Series. They were under uh, achieving, you know, like under 500. Even the Astros were underachieving and they made it all the way to the ALCS. So. In a way, that format didn't work because you put the mediocrity into postseason. I I will say that what did work with the postseason as more of a season thing this year in general is the the way to speed up the game in terms of the uh, the DH in all leagues. I think that will come at some point. The second base on extra innings play. Uh, it's different. I'm not sure it'll stick around. I didn't but, uh, like it. It, it kind of felt like a disadvantage to pitchers who had to come into that inning. But they put the pitchers at disadvantages all throughout baseball. This is just adding on to the adding on to that. Uh, joking aside, it, it was interesting to watch that dynamic. I will say what what did affect this postseason was this is the first year with that three batter rule for a pitcher. If they came in or unless they closed an inning out, that completely changed the way the postseason ran. Completely. Uh I, I'm not sure what's going to happen in terms of that. That was a more of a, again, general season rule. But in terms of the postseason itself, for what they did, I think it worked really well. Will they match it again in the future? I don't know. I don't think they're going to end up doing the bubbles again. Uh, that feels too much like the Super Bowl. And I don't think they really want a Super Bowl. I think they want to play in their home stadiums because it's a series, not a single event. So we'll see. And then one last thing is, uh, what was actually the key to winning this whole postseason in this strange year. It definitely didn't feel like the over-reliance on bullpen. That's for a fact. My key to winning the postseason this year is cohesion of your team. If we look at the team that got the furthest this year and performed the best was the Dodgers. That lineup has been around forever. Except for Mookie Betts and the young players, the young pitchers that have kind of progressed their way in. They sh- we knew they were going to have a shot at the winning from the beginning and they had a shot wing at the end. That's great. The Rays were kind of. That's where they kind of fell apart. And I, I don't want to go hard analytics anymore, but they rely on analytics to govern their lives. The Dodgers, sure, they did at some point. They had to rely on analytics a little bit, but they also had the art of a team. They've been around, they've been together for so long and they won. We saw the Astros get further than we wanted to because they were the same group of people. So we'll see how that much that bears fruit in the future. But that's, that's what I think won the World Series. I think the team that was going to win it won it. And as much as, again, I predicted the Rays were going to win. The Dodgers won because they're the Dodgers. And the Dodgers won. That's how I look at it, who won. What do you what, what do you say? I yeah, I agree. It's it, it is about familiarity with each other and knowing like what they could do in the right moment. Um, if you look at number wise, it was um, being able to hit and run in scoring position. Two outs, whoever was most clutch was obviously going to win it. And 
kind of feel like last same as last year. You need the starter to go the distance, and Dodgers clearly went that route. Like Walker Buehler and Kershaw went at least six innings, and in the bullpen did the rest of the work. Julio Rios covered a lot of ground as a starter, a starter going into the bullpen. So I think um, if you look at that, like and also less of an overmanagement also helped too. Dave Roberts didn't overmanage this postseason. He kept it easy. No early hooks like um, Kevin Cash did with Snell or even last year when uh, A.J. Hinch, the infamous A.J. AJ Hinch, uh, got an early hook off of uh, Zach Greinke when he was cruising. And that changed the whole dynamic of Game 7 of that series. So I think those were the key. We'll see how much they can care over the next year. And I think that's where we kind of start talking about the, the, the future of baseball, so to speak, because we, we have already started seeing moves being made by non-postseason teams, some postseason teams. Uh, again, we're taping this on October 31st and significant moves that have been made uh, so far. Uh, managerially, the Tigers have hired A.J. Hinch. The White Sox have hired Tony La Russa. So the AL Central has two new managers that are not new new managers. There are four managers who have been brought back. A.J. Hinch has been answering lots of questions about his wonderful life as an Astros manager. Taking a year off, he's now back on a team, a team that needs a lot of help. So we'll see how that goes. Next, we have players that are free agents significantly for most teams. Uh, We'll start that I can recall. Justin Turner is a free agent, truly a free agent from the Dodgers. Uh, We discussed the Rays briefly. The Rays have not picked up the options on Charlie Morton. They have lost their backup catcher, Michael Perez, on waivers. He's been claimed by the Pirates. And Zunino also got declined an option, so they basically have no catchers. There's that. The Cleveland Indians have not picked up the option on Brad Hand, their closer. That's out. Corey Kluber, who's been injured significantly for the Rangers, was not Pez option, not picked up. He is a free agent. Trevor Bauer, we've already discussed previously as a free agent. And then there, you keep going down the line. I saw the Mariners have um, let, um, did not pick up the option originally on Kendall Graveman and D. Strange Gordon. D. Strange Gordon did not get his option picked up. They then re-signed Kendall Graveman to a deal. So Kendall Graveman is sticking with the Mariners. He was injured, came back to the Mariners this year, pitched pretty well in the bullpen, and now has come back to the Mariners. So was the only player that got their uh, option picked up was Zach Britton then? Zach Britton is... Got picked up. Oh, go to the Cubs. Um, John Lester's option was not picked up. He's a paid, he's over a significant amount of money. And then we have Anthony Rizzo's option is still pending. As of again, this taping this podcast on October on Saturday, October 31st, his option is still pending, which is big. Uh, the other offseason news, not only to players, so to speak, but related to the, the future of baseball. Uh, the Mets have a new owner. Steve Cohen is now the owner of the Mets. That, all, that um, offer was approved this week by the remaining owners of other teams in the Major League Baseball. And the mayor. And Mayor de Blasio of New York City also approved a new owner. And he already has made significant moves within the uh, the business operations of the team, saying he'll pay back uh, employees that lost wages during the pandemic. He's also created funds to help seasonal employees in the future, which is great that he's valuing the team behind the scenes as much as the other on the field, hopefully. And now we have to look at what's going to happen with all the other future teams. We've got all these moves being made, different teams. And I, again, we have a wish list, obviously, of who's going to go where. We have about George Springer, who's a free agent. What's going to happen with him? 
and there you have it kind of like the major names so far. I mean, we'll learn more throughout the week and the winter meetings are obviously in December. I think the tough part right now is because of the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. There's a lot of uh, financial losses and constraints in all the teams like the A's for uh, let go of a lot of their staff members, a lot of scouts. All the smart market teams are letting go of their significant like staff members. And so like what happens free agency besides um, obviously the big names will probably get paid no matter what Springer, Bauer, even Stroman, all those players will get paid. What's going to happen to the middle class of free agents? Are they going to get anything or are they, do they have to stick to one year deal or even a minor league contract? Like what's going to really happen to them? Financial constraints of teams is an interesting dynamic. Um, and I'm sure we'll see the valuation of those teams come out next late this year, early next year about what's going to happen, how far they went down. I don't personally know what's going to happen. It could go either way in terms of like really bad, like you cannot sign anyone. Uh, what's going to happen with the salary cap is another issue. I would love to think that everyone's going to get the fair amount of money they're going to deserve. Will that happen? I'm signing with the evidence of no. It's disappointing, but we understand what's going to happen. It does feel like um, baseball world has also been hit by the U.S. economy. So it feels like the U.S. economy where the rich will get rich, the poor will get the poor contract, middle class probably destroyed at this point. I love to take that the politics out of that that concept of political economy out of this, but it it does a reflection, have a reflection on what's going to happen in the state of baseball. Uh, I would again, I have a wish list for all my players where they're going to go, what kind of money they'll get. I don't know. I will say the most interesting discussion is going to be around starting pitching. We've already discussed three significant starting pitchers who have no home right now: John Lester, Corey Kluber, Trevor Bauer. Those three. Where are they going to go? Again, Corey Kluber is coming off significant injuries. He pitched at most a game or an inning this year in 2020, which is not Corey Kluber of, of what we would hope for. Trevor Bauer pitched remarkably well when he needed to for the Reds. But the Reds were not good when they need to be good, like we've talked about in our uh, Decision Series podcast and Wildcard podcast. They did not show up and they need to show up. And then you have John Lester and John Lester is historically great. But he's in the twilight of his career. He just basically followed Theo Epstein to Balt to, from Boston to Chicago. And what's going to happen now in Chicago? Chicago did not do well this world, did not do well this postseason either. And they have significant money embraced in their fielders. What's going to happen with them? I would love to think that John Lester is going to find a home and, and finish out his career in, a, in a, a significant manner. We don't know that, though. And then also we have all the players coming back who were either injured this year or opted out this year. How is that going to fluctuate with rosters? So we'll see in terms of the that. But I think the starting pitcher is definitely the market to watch going into 2021. What about position players like... I mean, we talked about Springer, just uh, DJ LeMayhew, obviously. Uh, we we're talking about even the catcher market, JT Real Muto. They're going to be paid big day. JT Real Muto is always this wild story to watch in offseason because he is very highly valued as a catcher and as a player. Being with him. He was extremely high value for the Marlins. 
And then as he moved on, he was getting highly valued every team he went to. I do think he's going to get something significant. I think he'll be probably become the highest play catcher in Major League Baseball. I think that's a reasonable expectation for him. George Springer, I think he's going to get a deal he's not going to be happy with, but I think he's going to get a deal. And then I go like to the infielder, Justin Turner versus DJ LeMahieu. DJ LeMahieu is statistically one of the best players this year. I want him back with the Yankees. Which is that breaks my heart a little bit. I love seeing him back with the Yankees. Justin Turner. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with him. We don't know what's going to happen right now. Let alone what's going to happen in the future. He's a free agent. And he's been with the Dodgers his entire playing career. Outside the Mets, obviously. Right. When he was of note, when he was on every Dodgers playoff team, he's like, he's basically the, the prodigal son of, so, to, uh, uh, of that organization with Clayton Kershaw and Cody Bellinger and Corey Seager. It's like they are there. That, that unit has stuck around. Let's have with them. I mean, the Dodgers are obviously, I think, picked for 2021 World Series already. They're why, both why, for it. why wouldn't you? They already have like five other like farm like prospects they could like raise up and they'll still be fine. Like they still have um, Josiah Gray for a starting pitching prospect. Like they have so many great pieces for them to uh, raise and they could still they'll be fine without even Kershaw, to be fair. And they'll still compete. Farm system. The minor league baseball being ripped away this year is un- was terrible to, to watch. Because we need to hear about the the future of these future prospects and how they're going to perform. I mean, it did set them back at least by a year because they did not have a consistent playing time and been in fierce competition. It's just scrimmage games in the alternate site. Uh, so it did hinder the development. Um, so we don't know what we're going to go from there. The, the Dodgers farm system was something that we've talked about before uh, in passing. And I, I was like at Gavin Lux. Because Gavin Lux is going to throw that team into a bit of a, a change. Because he's a great prospect. If he, if he makes the major league roster and he plays second base, which I presume is the position of choice they would like him to play, it moves pieces around that you kind of didn't want to move around so much. And that puts the Chris Taylor era of Dodger baseball in, in jeopardy. Uh, we kind of knew it comes to an end at some point, maybe, but we'll see. Or does that push like an AJ Pollock out or a Jock Peterson out? Does it like multiple teams are going to face this dynamic of if you bring a person up, who are you going to push out? We also saw injury riddled teams. What's going to happen with them? Like we talked multiple times about how the Padres were not built for the playoffs this year and they made it. And you could just see the, uh, the look on their on the team's faces, they made it like, oh, wow, we made it. What do we do now? And I think of all the like the elements of what's, what's going to make that type of organization good. And maybe that's what I'm looking forward to in terms of like organizationally is like, what's going to happen to these teams when they try to like flex their muscle in terms of bringing players up, reworking their current lineups, or they do, they do acquisitions. I think the Red Sox are going to be terrible again. And uh, that's my uh, that's my one prediction that I hopefully comes to pass. I think the Red Sox are not good. I think they're in a terrible state. They played this year like they were just playing for the sake of we got to play a season. Great. Just put ourselves out there and play a game. And Right. They gave up. <laughs> like they did not have any starting pitching once. Like 
uh, Eduardo Rodriguez went down. They're like, all right, white flag, we're done. Oh, yeah, that was they they raised the white flag really, really quickly. On the other side, terms of hope, we talked about the the White Sox. I'm not happy with the White Sox uh, position right now from a perspective of like Tony La Russa is not a manager that I expected to be a manager of the young and up and coming White Sox. And now they have to contend with that. Like, I hope there's no conflict. And I hope Larusa does well and does right by these players because we love the White Sox youth, just like we talked about the Padres, love their youth. The White Sox, my, again, I talk, I rave about Michael Kopesh. I think he's going to be a great pitcher if he gets healthy and he gets the treatment that he needs to continue on with his mental health progress. I think he's going to be such a dynamic pitcher on that roster. And then you look at down their lineup, Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson, Yohan Moncada. They're so good. They should have won that division and made it far. And they just fell apart. And that might be I think to Rick Renteria. Rick Renteria. And I think they are the opposite of the Dodgers. They're a piecemeal team from all corners of the, of the globe, all corners of the organization. Dodgers aren't like that. Give them a couple of years, give them the pot a couple of years. I think you're going to have those are your two new teams of, of real power. Uh, resident Mariners take, I think the Mariners maybe have a shot next year. Uh, they, the youngest team. Especially if the current core progresses even more next year and the Astros lose Brantley, Springer, and all their potential free agents, then yeah, most likely. And the A's are A's. So we don't know, like, they're going to lose a lot of significant pieces for them, like Liam Hendricks, uh, Simeon. So they're losing a lot of production on both sides, too. So AL West is honestly the wild card. Or even if the Angels are, is willing to pay even more money to uh, build a core around Mike Trout while he's still in his prime, that's another thing. Anaheim Angels are a fascinating take in baseball because they have all the pieces to be amazing. But they can't win. Well, they just they forget the pitching. They just win. don't have pitching. They used to have pitching. They used to have really good pitching many years ago. Are we talking about John, like the days when John Lackey was their rookie? John Lackey, Weaver. I mean, like you, you, you roll those guys out there. Even a former, former Mariner, um, uh, Aaron Seeley. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were so good. And just falling off because they I mean, they they paid a lot of money to Trout and a lot of money to Rendon. And then you have the unicorn in Shohei Otani who's been rushed from his recovery and now he's really injured. So you're losing a two-way player right there and he lost Simmons. Uh, like, how are you going to build a core? And then they fire their GM. Like, your farm system's like in the ground. Like, what are you going to do from here? We've kind of brushed over each division, and you. We I go back to the point you said earlier about the, the 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 bottom, the lower tier market team versus the higher market team. What's going to happen if the lower tier teams can find that efficient break? And I will again. We've sourced it many times. Randy Rosarena a break in a trade. So if you get that, and you run it as far as you can, it's like yay, that's going to do it. I think teams in the lower tier markets can maybe pull that off. Like there are some teams that really have that. Brewers have players who were injured. They come back. They play well. Mariners have players who 
played above their grade and they now come to their form a little more, they play well. They may, they, they do better than they did this year. The Rays, if Randy Rosarena can play that for a full season, may God have mercy on the souls of every opponent they ever play against. And you have a new Longoria. I mean, but it's a race, so I'm pretty sure he's going to be traded again for more pieces. Sure. We, 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 there's one thing we depend on is analytics do the right thing. I say that with facetiously. Analytics has been questioned throughout this entire podcast, even by me. <laughs> and you're a business intelligence and expert. That's my, and it's, I mean, my entire career off analytics, and now I'm questioning it a little bit. Because like I said, the art and science is getting out of balance within baseball analytics. And the, there's a lot of question about like, the product of the game was going to happen. I mean, I will say this for upcoming free agency. Because of analytics, players are going to lose a lot of values in their free agency contracts. That's what I think is going to be the. I think, I think that's exactly right. I think the players that are going to get properly valued are going to be like in a like like a, everyone's going to move down as a class of players. I think there'll be a couple overplayed players in the bunch. I think the one player that's going to yeah, I'll bring this back that that should get paid X is going to get paid less than X is George Springer. George Springer is that player that I think is going to get paid some amount, and he's like, why did I even? Why am I even here right now? Like, what's the point? He's going to get J.D. Martinez type of treatment where J.D. Martinez wanted 200 million. He only got 110 million. Same with Springer. Yeah. Uh, Back to your Yankees. They got to make something happen. Yankees, uh, they just, they just have to retool quite a bit. Like, there's a question. Like, if we do bring bring back D.J. LeMahieu, it's Glaber Torres giving another shot at shortstop. But he's a, the problem with the Yankees is that they're not as athletic as the Dodgers. They have too many one-dimensional guys who just hits home runs are, and are probably better DHs than going on the field. So you have a very unathletic you know, group, group of guys, and you need to get athletic to get your defense better. And then question mark in pitching. Like right now, as of today, because Tanaka and Paxton are free agent, you only have Garrett Cole. Davey Garcia and Jordan Montgomery in your rotation. You're missing two spots. Like you could get go to Clark Schmidt or uh, Michael King, but they're pro- unproven commodity right there. And you need the veteran presence. You don't have pitching. Your bullpen's a question now. Was Adovino and everyone else having a very much of a down ear? So you only have Britton and we don't, and Canley is already injured and he's probably gone. So and then we you have Chapman who still continues the legend of the meme. So. Who do we really have to do? Like, we have to get younger. We have to trade more pieces, like, and we have to acquire middle of the ground pieces. Like, for example, like, I'm a huge proponent of trading Gary Sanchez and grabbing James McCann from free agency because now you have a decent offense and a big upgrade in uh, defense. So that's what they need to do. They just need to get better defensively. Like, you, just, if you rely on like big guys to hit and Glaber Torres to come back, like, your offense is still there. So. Why not get better in defense and uh, pitching? It's a very interesting concept. Look, I, I always think about trading Gary Sanchez or trading Aaron Judge or trading all these players, like these big name players. Like, what would you do? Uh, I think an interesting in the NL East, interesting cobbled together lineup this year was the Philadelphia Phillies with Segura and yet Harper from the year prior, obviously. And then you, you get all these little pieces together and what's going to happen with them? Right, they pour five hundred million dollars in the past two to three off seasons, and they have an under five hundred record, and just has not made a playoff with all those money. And then they demo- demoted their GM. What are they gonna do? Like, 
Are they going to retain JT Realmuto? Are they going to answer the question, was their bullpen? Because the bullpen had the highest ERA in the modern era, 7 ERA. Like, that is horrendous. That's bad. That's really bad. I would not hope that sticks around. And their starting pitching wasn't that bad. Like, they had Nola, Wheeler, and Eflin. Like, they carried that rotation. And even with Jake Carrieta, you know, pulling the weight down, like, they still did well. It's all because of the bullpen. Because if you look at their team this year, they had the offense. They had the depth for the offense. They brought up even Alec Baum. And he's probably going to be something big next. And yet they couldn't even go further. Because if they had the actual bullpen, they could have gone all the way deep into the World Series. Phillies really were shaping up to be a good team. And they just didn't shape up as well as they should. And the Nationals, Nationals obviously have several players who opted out this year. How are they gonna How are they gonna recover right from the World Series hang? I mean, it wasn't even a hangover. It's more of like they just died. Like their um, pieces yeah, that they, won the they championship really just did not progress. Uh, in terms of again, young organization, we're very excited for to see the future of Toronto. Uh, I I really hope they 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 made the playoffs this year, which is great. I hope they turn. I hope they keep on the good trajectory with them. I'm curious to see how the whole dynamic with Guerrero and Bobachette and bringing more players along the line. What's going to happen with them? Their pitching was very cobbled together this year too. They had, they made some trades with the, they got Taiwan Walker, the very, uh, the, in the, in the, in the, in the hours. Robbie Ray, <laughs> Robbie Ray, the best fi- fancy pitcher I ever had in my life was Robbie Ray. Really liked Robbie Ray. Uh, we'll see how that goes. My favorite I mean, still has been Nick Anderson for my fantasy team. Like I had him two years in a row strikeout machine in the regular season the interesting dynamic speaking of a team of the formerly of, of robbie ray and patrick corbin the diamondbacks have become like the like kind of like in this like very like purgatory-esque state with the uh nl west and i have a soft spot for the san francisco giants well we'll see what they do you and i have talked several times away from the podcast about are they gonna blow up the lineup or are they gonna Keep what they got and go with some more players. We both have a lot of high regard for Mike Yastrzemski. Are they going to keep him? Or are they going to trade him? There's a lot of this, this theme. I'll go with that. That's a good theme to kind of keep in mind. You have this one core player who's really good and is youngish in the young, not young, young, like way down the, at the young end of the, just coming out of the, just coming out, but in like kind of like that really like middle of the road, age like the 25 to 32 range he's really good what are you gonna do with them you're gonna trade him you're gonna keep him you're gonna build around him who's that gonna be can you build him around mike yastrzemski maybe can you build a team because we saw the angels probably like the exist the folly of it all try to build a team around mike trout and pay him a ton of money doesn't really work uh because he ran out of money and then you look at a team on the flip that's like they develop from in-house and they just slightly add pieces along the way that build it up. Like the Padres, you got Tetsis Jr. And then you add Eric Hosmer. Then you add a big name in Manny Machado. And then you add this player, you add Zach Davies. And then you make a trade, you get Austin Nola. And you kind of like, this is the elements that you want to do. You go that way. 
So you, again, the two school, the kind of like those two spec, those two ends of the spectrum schools of thought, and you kind of figure out where your team aligns the way what's going to happen here. Because I'll be honest with you, I think the Rays can build a team around Randy Arazarena. They can build a team around the core that they have with Arazarena. I don't think you can build a team around him yet. He's not proven enough with with that kind of uh, resume in terms of baseball records. Well, Rays are also another team. They're like the A's where they don't have the budget or the owner doesn't want to give the budget. So they're forced to trade pieces whenever the value is high so they can get even more cheaper pieces. That's that's been the Rays MO for so long. You can't avoid it. I would love to see a team like the the Braves do well again like they did this year. I mean, if they add Bauer and keep Darno, they're set. Because their bullpen stayed strong when they needed to stay strong. And we saw their bullpen just flex a very a lot of muscle against the Dodgers. I think the Braves, despite having a great farm and a great team, it's not really about the team. It's about the city, Atlanta. It's known as a choke town. Like, how do you get away from that curse, right, for the Braves? They, I mean, they really have to break that curse. The Falcons, the Hawks, the, they all got to break that curse. Right, the 28 and 3 Chris. Yeah, that that that's a, a discussion for another podcast in our sport. The like I said the 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 nature of the flexibility of what's going to happen because I think there's a lot of unknowns with what's going to happen. Like when they start next season, wait, how, wait, how much money are you going to make next season? How much money can you spend now? We'll see. Winter meetings will be very interesting. Winter meetings is about forty five days away from now, and scheduled. it's no no longer in person. It's uh, via what Skype. And Zoom. Are they, so. do, are they doing? Are they doing? Yeah, Skype there's, officially there's no in-person meetings. This uh, is a winter meeting. Well, if we if we learn anything from an from a, a meeting of minds that were virtual and things that can happen, it'll go a little bit nuts. Uh, unpredictability. The NFL draft showed us that. I mean, the WNBA draft showed us that too. It's like you have the NBA draft coming up. It's like, can you really make a bunch of trades? Can you do it? So you can make things happen if you want to make them happen. We'll see. We've already seen a couple pieces move, like we said, with certain players. But I think in the next couple of days, between now and Thanksgiving, we're going to see a lot of players' options are going to get rejected or not picked up. It's going to keep going and going and going. And the next I'm going to follow is Anthony Rizzo. And if Anthony Rizzo leaves the Cubs, that's a sign of what the Cubs are thinking of doing. Because then you got Chris Bryant. Right. Upcoming, um, Schwarber, all three of them, upcoming free agents after 2021. Betting on one more year. Oh, there's that. There, there, there's, the, there's your signs of the future. There's, your, there's the crystal ball we're looking into in terms of the future of baseball. You go to 2021. Yep. What are, and what, what the teams are going to do with it will be interesting. And also if there's going to be a change in their philosophy, like after when they seen the World Series, was there, are they going to go the Rays route or are they going to go the Dodgers, Dodgers route and, you know, raise their farm and then start spending? Yeah, the, the analytics mindset, we're going to have a lot of questions and a lot of discussion about how embraced analytics is, really is for baseball with front office decisions, on the field decisions for 2021. Kevin K- Kevin Cash in that in that front office in Tampa Bay stuck to a plan in concrete, and we saw the unpredictable happen. 
but we kind of predicted the unpredictable, didn't we? Like, again, you walk back and forth on this, on this line of like what you do, what you don't do. But the philosophy, you're right. You're exactly right. Do, we, do, do teams embrace that philosophy more? They, do they, do they get rid of it? And we, we personally don't know. I would like to think that teams are going to make their decisions a little, with a little more art, hopefully, going forward. But baseball has so many unpredictable factors that you want to find a way to, to limit your unpredictability. And analytics, again, analytics is designed to squash unpredictable factors into a, compre- a, a form that can be understood and controlled. Even though it's a, an uncontrollable sphere of instances, it's a controlled environment that you're putting them in, in a very kind of cursory way. Now, I don't want the Rays to keep doing what they're doing to a certain degree. Like, I want Blake's not to pitch those nine innings. I want Even Blake Charlie Morton, like, we want the starters to pitch uh, up to 100 pitches and not go straight to the bullpen when they're cruising around. Because, again, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll kind of start concluding thoughts a little bit on this. The Rays had two games that were flipped in terms of, like, the good and the bad of analytics. The good analytics was the Charlie Morton inefficiency game of 114 pitches with the bullpen. Whole, whole game, 114 pitches, done and dusted, win game seven, walk on down to um, the World Series. The end of the World Series, you, you got to remove him. Just hit the point, out he goes. And you brought in a player that was not analytically the right decision. It was the predicted decision, but not the analytic, not, not the art. It was the analytically the right decision to bring a new person, but art and science, uh, the art and creativity side of it was like, don't bring him in. Someone else, seven runs in a row. Like, what are you doing? Six games in a row. He's got a run. Turns out to be seven. Like, no, 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 no. Don't bring him in. And teams are going to build their rosters based on that concept. And I don't kind of, I don't really like it like that. I want teams to build their roster on like chemistry and feel and all these other things, as well as the structure that's going to bear the most success for them. And, that's going to be the signs to watch. You're going to hear this constant conversation about the role of analytics and all the decisions that we've discussed from both signing, financial, structure of your team, all up and down. That's it for this episode of Serenara Baseball. Serenara Baseball is hosted and produced by me, Kazuki Akiba and Tara Hori. Guest starring Brandon Beiser from Forza Beiser and the Airline Guy blog. Please check out his LinkedIn profile if you're looking for business intelligence help, as well as any advice on finance and air travel tips. This episode was edited by Kazuki Akiba, was additional research and editing by Maria Tierney. Our theme song is by Kay Margus. Ray Laptop mixed this episode. Serenara Baseball is a production of Daylight and Media 3 Limited. We'll be back with another episode episode. If you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast as more people will know about this show. Go to daylightinteractive.com to see some exclusive updates and more about our upcoming shows. I'm Kazuki Akiba. I'm Tara Hori. And this has been Sound Baseball.